0: It's not like they're criminals being arrested, you know, and even if they were, you're still you're still able to have access to some type of dignity.
1: And you have to put things in perspective of is this actually making society
2: worse? Why are we as citizens not able to hold these bad cops accountable? And it's because of this. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Social Discord. Episode 23, Good Cop, Bad Cop, Part 2. Why we gave police their power a history lesson. I'm Dalen Turk.
0: I'm Karen Tebow.
2: And I'm Curtis Medina. Curtis, I see you laughing. Did I do it out of order or something?
1: <laughs> no, there was there was there was just a pause
0: right before Kara said I, her I, name. I just have went to a different planet for a second. I just, I'm back. I'm back.
2: All right, folks. Oh, we God. are here for part two of Good Cop, Bad Cop. We are ready to dive in. Uh, we left off in the first episode with uh, the uh, Nixon's war on drugs taking their first victims. So, Curtis, why don't you uh, take us away?
1: Yeah, so, okay. So we are back to uh, the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Uh, candidate Nixon, uh, he seized on the association between race and the rising in crime uh, to win that election. Uh, this was um, after... Some really high-profile kind of scary moments in American history, some shootings, um, and uh, and Middle America was ready to believe that total anarchy was just around the corner. Well, and this was at a time.
2: This was at a time when fifty-six percent of Americans supported using police to crack down on protests. Which obviously, it's the '60s. Protests have been going on for the past decade. And then another interesting one is 66% thought police should get more power. So on yeah, top th- of everything they've done, 66% of Americans thought it wasn't enough. This this is a generational
1: shift, just like what's happening right now in America. You know, you have you have the greatest generation aging out, you at the time you had baby boomers coming up. You know, thinking differently about things like drugs, about war, about race, making real social change, just like it is today. Uh, you know, the baby boomers are now on the other end of 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 that argument. They're very resistant. Some are very resistant to you know to to different types of change, different types of um, you know uh, the race debate, things like that. Um, so so just like today, they they were fighting for. A lot of a lot of new rights and at this and, and the people who were against it and making and getting a lot of power by resisting that change uh, were the Republicans um, Nixon was the kind of a perfect example of an old-school Republican that uh, was was pretty boring to a lot of younger people but but was a very safe uh choice for a lot of middle-aged older americans
2: that's why he lost uh, to that hot young hip mr jfk <laughs>
1: <laughs> and everyone brings that up but you know but and that's true it's very true that side by side with him he had he didn't have a chance but he did come back and and that is one of the greatest comebacks in history most people would have just mm-hmm. given up and said the younger generation has it he said uh-uh I'm going to come back and I'm going to double down on my nixonism.
2: Well, and Nixon was <laughs> yeah. Nixon was a much better politician. You know, it's the whole thing is if it was on radio, Nixon would have swept the floor with JFK in that right. first election. You know, and it, that it, was and that
1: was the first televised um, debate yeah. ever. And so, so it, that well, it, they weren't ready for it.
0: Nixon also realized that like he wasn't popular with people very much and literally like went to like acting coaches. Did he elections. really? yeah he did
2: he essentially
0: went to acting coaches to go basically learn how to be more likable on tv wow
2: i didn't Um, know that
0: Mm if you're a genius now we
1: just have to make people not hate you yeah (laughs) that's That's interesting
2: i would have thought nixon would have been too arrogant to do something like that
0: well i think he was i think that uh the pride in losing was yeah you know
2: that make okay that's fair that's fair
1: he was very motivated to yeah.
2: win. Yeah. Oh, absolutely! I mean, you know, it, Watergate.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, very motivated to win. So yeah, you know, and so it, you know, a movie I can recommend. I'm a big movie fan. Uh, there's this movie that came out last year. It was nominated for best picture. Kind of got washed over by uh, other movies that were also yeah. really good. But you should definitely check it out. It's called The Trial of Chicago oh. Seven. Um, Aaron Sorkin film, and it is actually about this exact yep. uh time period because. Uh, police were, were starting to crack down on on uh, protesters and hippies and all these people who were considered to be undesirable. Um, and a large part of America was totally okay with that violence if it, as long as it was against these new young, you know, troublemakers.
2: Well, and, and we see this was an a instance where we saw police just indiscriminately attacking protesters and attacking people that it was totally unwarranted but because there was this vision in so many eyes of americans that it was crimes it was violence it was drugs it was all justified and we'll see Mm -hmm. that as we go through this that so many of these actions were considered justifiable in the eyes of the courts
1: And you see these terms being repeated over and over again throughout history. Nixon called his people the ignored America. And years later, Reagan called them the silent majority. And then Trump called them the forgotten American. You know, like like they are just copying one after another.
2: Let's take a poll here. Which one of those three is your favorites? (laughs) I first, silent majority i was gonna say nice. silent majority is definitely the best one like let's be real
1: <laughs> because that one is both strong and scary you like mm-hmm.
2: like
1: somebody lurking that silently but they are also like there's also more of them so they're gonna like overpower yeah. you like whether you're they're right or wrong like they're just gonna like like, take over america that's really creepy to me.
2: ignored america makes it sound like someone was just shoved in a corner and like ah eh, we'll, we'll deal with you later but silent majority it's is like how
1: Nixon felt. <laughs> <laughs> he,
2: he needed a new marketing uh, leader there
1: so they started okay so they started making laws um left and right to to empower police to to uh to take down this threat um, that they that they felt um, and and uh, to s- start the war on drugs to try to eradicate drugs off the street to try to you know really push back hard on crime um, and there's a r- really great quote from this from the book that that we're referencing here a lot the rise of the warrior cop um, where where they quote uh, Senate Ma- Majority Leader Mike Mansfield which was the highest ranking member of the Senate after the Vice President and he said that at one point he was so overwhelmed by the amount of laws that they were that were putting forward that he just gave up trying to figure out if the laws he was voting on were constitutional he said he just voted for them all and he'd let the court sort them out <laughs> that's so <laughs>
2: horrifying <laughs>
1: That's the—I that I, I call that when you throw things against a wall and see what sticks, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> strategy, and that, that's not good
2: governance. Well, and the the sad thing is I feel like there's a lot of lot of politicians that do exactly that.
0: Which mm-hmm. is so lame because, like, your constituents are voting for you because you, assumingly, have, like, very certain beliefs. And if you're just going to vote for everything, it's like, well, you right. don't stand for anything.
2: Well, and then in recent— go ahead no go i was just no go ahead you're fine <laughs> i was gonna I go gonna off quite... on a tangent
1: <laughs> i was gonna say in, in recent years um i'm really glad that we're actually kind of re-examining the black panthers because they weren't evil people that that they were depicted in in a lot of the the news that you saw at the time they had they had a lot of reasons to be doing what they were doing and they had been pushed around by the cops so much that when they started you know like visibly holding guns and, and 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 guarding their own neighborhoods against some of this oppression. Like, you can't blame them for that. And uh, and uh, there was another really great movie that was also nominated for Best Picture um, last year um, that uh, called Judas and the Black Messiah, which mm-hmm. talks a lot about this. Um, and uh, it's basically... Uh, SWAT raids started around this time, and one of the main organizations that they wanted to completely squash was the black panthers they saw them as a as like a rising militia Mm -hmm. and they didn't see their reasoning for 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 what they were asking for well and, Um, and
2: j edgar hoover took a personal vendetta against the black panthers although you know there there were instances of course as we all know like j edgar hoover was a man who took things incredibly personally, um, and I think that's mm-hmm. due to personal traumas within his life. As if anyone knows J. Edgar Hoover, he uh, had a lot of personal issues. And so, especially within the uh, creation of the FBI, he took a lot of things personally, and this was an instance where it became a, a goal for him to shut down the Black Panther Party.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and, and we also see Daryl Gates getting brought into the, the mix here of, of the LAPD. Um, so it, this is an interesting story that um, at the time, uh, Gates was just starting to get the SWAT teams going and was, and was trying to be really careful so that it wouldn't be shut down. Um, so he actually decided to ask for permission um, from the mayor uh, who actually had to call Washington to get permission even higher to use a grenade launcher.
2: A <laughs> <laughs> <At> grenade launcher. <laughs> a
1: gr- one grenade launcher. But like, So it needed that amount of permission to do that because it was such a crazy idea for the time. And one of the things that, that the book points out, The Rise of the Warrior Cop, um, was that nowadays there's no permission asked mm-hmm. to use things like that they have them already in the police departments they can use them pretty much at their discretion yeah. and and and, uh, and they're given a, a big leeway for this
2: and it's not like i will say they're not shooting off grenades like they're they're used for tear gas canisters and such things as that so they're not just launching grenades blindly at people um, although I guess I I, I I don't know of any instances where that was, so may, maybe it has happened, but I, I feel like that would be known if they launched grenades <laughs> at the Black Panther party.
1: It was actually kind of a botched fa- uh, 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 failure of a of a raid uh, at the time, and it was really highly um, covered by the news because they thought it was going to be a really big thing for them. Um, but it actually kind of made them look like idiots. Um, they... they <laughs> They, they did end up arresting um, some Black Panthers, and, but in this raid, the Black Panthers shot um, several of the cops, and, and they went on trial for it and actually were able to use the defense um, that they didn't know they were cops and that they were shooting intruders um, because there was some disagreement about whether or not they said who they were. They looked mm-hmm. like they were like a military force like like attacking them because they didn't look like cops. This is a whole new thing for the time. Um, so I guess they actually did get acquitted, Yeah. Um, but this is a defense that never works now.
2: Well, it's, it's one of those things, and we'll see it as we go through this episode where, and Curtis, you mentioned it before we started recording, of it, its cause and effect. Something happens, and they're like, okay, we need to figure out a loophole to get around this or create a law or something to get around this, and that's what they do from time and time and time again.
1: So we have to go back in time just a little bit. Like, so I have to explain something. Uh, so so that there was this thing called the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1913. Um, it gave the federal government the authority to regulate illicit drugs um, that had but up to that point it had mostly been limited to the power just to tax them. Um, so they used this, this as a precursor. And in 1969, um, the Supreme Court struck down the marijuana tax act. Uh, which was a case involving a counterculture icon named Timothy Leary, which I actually had heard before.
2: Mm.
1: Um, I don't know. I think I heard him in a folk song or something. I don't know
2: what. <laughs> <was> like a <laughs> Willie Nelson song or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so, so there was a, a, a new bill. Uh, it was uh, – I don't have the guy's name right in front of me, but his last name was Dodd. Um, and it took this new strategy that instead of prohibiting illicit drugs by taxing them because that wasn't going to work anymore – Um, Dodd's bill gave the justice department a wide range of new powers that they could directly enforce federal drug prohibition under the authority of the constitution's commerce clause. You guys remember when we talked about the, the commerce clause before?
0: Mm -hmm. memory.
1: Okay. So this is, this is a really interesting law that has been like a part of, 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 of a lot of different changes in America. So we last talked about it when we were talking about the civil rights act, because it was the reason that we were able to desegregate private businesses. Cause the idea was right. that if, if products cross state lines um, it is now federal jurisdiction and mm-hmm. the states can't just decide That's right. it's okay. Or the private person can't just decide it's okay. So they used it again for this purpose, saying that the federal government had the right to uh, to control drugs that they didn't like um, under this same law because it affected multiple states and it was crossing borders.
2: It's, it's interesting how like you can use one um, like one act to do a wide swath of things and you can manipulate the wording and what it does to basically just do what you want it to do.
1: I mean, I think this one might be the the most elastic of all <laughs> like, acts. You know, I mean, it, it has really been used quite a few times for a, a wide variety of purposes—some good, some not so good. Um, so under under the nineteen seventy Federal Crime Bill that they came out with, um, the annual budget for federal funds to police precincts went from seventy five million dollars to five hundred million dollars.
2: That's massive. <laughs>
0: quite a quite a leap there.
1: I mean, and this goes back to what Nixon was saying um, in in that speech, where he said, "We will give any amount of money." Like I've never heard a Republican say that, except for maybe like like maybe the war with Iraq war, or something. Yeah, yeah like uh, he basically said, "You need more money for this. We will give you more money." And uh, and and they did. And ever since then, the amount of money that the federal government gives to police has been growing every single time. And I'm talking Democrats. I'm talking Republicans. I'm talking to people who are in power now. Um, the most money I believe that was given to police was through in the Obama administration. So, you know, anyone who's anti-Democrat for, you know, blue lives not mattering to him or whatever, like you're kind of full of crap because they mm-hmm. have given a ton of money and support to police, um, maybe too much. And and definitely without asking a ton of questions, which they should definitely have done.
2: Right. Well, I think um, we see it in the later 80s as well as another instance of Joe Biden working on the side of police to get them more money.
1: And 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 there was no like it wasn't like there was never a time where they were like, tell us what you need and we will like we'll consider it. It was like, here's money, do stuff with it. Like we're just yeah. going to throw money at this problem. There was a quote from that Rise of the Warrior Cop book um, from a former police officer. I think his name was Santarelli. Where he said they didn't value education or training; they valued hardware. Uh, the city of Birmingham asked for an armored personnel carrier. Uh, other police chiefs wanted tanks. Los Angeles asked for a submarine. <laughs> for what? I don't
2: know. <laughs> I, I do. I do understand. I don't like, think they knew. Like, why oh, so like is
0: your police like your police force is not the navy? Yeah. Right? Submarine.
2: i will it say was no, one of those
0: like you gotta ask
1: you gotta ask first and like worry about yeah the consequences later i guess
2: i think there are certain uh like police forces where a submarine or at least nowadays with the way submarines are now where you can get like the two-man subs for like you know, di- like shipwreckage, help, whatever it may be. So they be. just
1: they just wanted the Disneyland sub. Like, yeah. they just wanted like like the one that like like they could just like I go just, like five feet in the water.
2: I feel like in 1970, <laughs> the only subs were like attack military subs or like r- scouting submarines. Like, I can't like for some very specific military esque reasons.
1: Police wanted it just in case, but they really wanted it to create fear in the hearts of criminals. Um, They felt that, like, if they had this ready, just by having it, no one would dare do whatever they were going to do. Like, you know, whatever unimaginable thing somebody might do that a submarine would help, you know, stop. uh, It would stop them from even thinking about it.
2: You know, we have to look back to what we talked about in the beginning of this series of the idea of the thin blue line, us and them, is they're looking at the criminals, everyone they consider criminals on one side, and they want them to look back at their side of the line and see terror. Like, they do not want to mess with that.
1: Absolutely. And at the same time, there was, there was this alternate way that some uh, police chiefs were were handling this. They, they, you know, of course they wanted more money. Every, you know, if you care about your department, you want more money, but but some police chiefs like uh, the head of the DC police, which was Jerry Wilson at the time, uh, you know, he had a different approach. So he, so he did hire a thousand additional police officers uh, using Nixon's crime bill money, but he instructed the officers to actually avoid bi- violence. And he even um, told them not to stand in front of protesters in riot gear and looking all tough and everything. Instead, he instructed them to park nearby a protest in a bus just in case mm-hmm. they were needed. So, so he was, he was a kind of an interesting mix of, of these ideologies where he felt like it was needed perhaps, but that he also worried that their presence created the chaos, mm-hmm. didn't preve- not prevented it. Um, well, and, and, that's, uh, and That's
2: something I witnessed firsthand at the Black Lives Matter protest back in 2019 mm-hmm. here in Austin was and, and I saw police officers doing there. It, it was an interesting mix because there were some police officers who tried to talk with the protesters and they communicate and they weren't trying to be intimidating. And but then there were some that I saw were they were egging it on. They were trying to mm-hmm. start it. And, you know, I'm not saying it was everybody. But I saw it happen. You know, and I think just their presence there—it's—it's it's the idea of Newton's law. With every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, right? And I think that goes yeah. beyond physics in the sense that if there is a presence there that is opposing your protest, opposing opposing your movement, there will be a reaction to that.
0: Dalen, it seems like when we talked after that protest. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like you were a little bit shook by what you saw because, um, I I mean, we've never really seen that reaction from police with our own eyes before, right? Like we know it, we hear about it, but like you witnessed it, like you just Mm -hmm. said. And did that kind of like change your perception of police maybe a little bit more?
2: I mean, it it did in the sense that, you know, like like I said, I... I know a lot of people were police officers. I've I've worked right alongside a lot of police officers in my time working um, in athletics operations. My father-in-law is a sheriff's deputy, but it, it was the first time where you know I see on the news these things happening. But it was my first time witnessing bad cops. It was my first time witnessing firsthand malpractice. It was I I was shoot I was photographing um, cops and they were lined along the interstate and. We were on the like the grass embankment going down to the frontage road. And on the opposite side of the frontage road, there was these apartment complexes. And there were some people just sitting on the grass below the apartments just watching. And I, I saw police officers just completely, without any hesitation, without any war, any justification, aim their shotguns and just start shooting those people who were just sitting there doing nothing. And was they with rubber bullets. I it guess. was, it was with rubber bullets and beanbags and they just would aim up and just shoot at people. Were
1: they shooting them correctly? I, I, from what I understand with rubber bullets, you're supposed to like hit the ground and like, and it's supposed to bounce and hit them that you're not actually supposed to hit the person directly.
2: No, not, not really. Um, cause the whole point yeah, is that it's, it's not legal. Um, but, but, no, don't, don't, but
1: the people don't know that necessarily. Like, no, you know, I, like if somebody points a gun at you, you don't know. You're hoping that it's a rubber bro- bullet, you know?
2: Well, and I've seen because they have like different ones and like they have the ones where it shoots out of basically looks like a, a single shell or a single barrel grenade launcher and it shoots this rubber bowl that's like the size of a golf ball. It's usually oh, wow. like, you know, I saw someone five feet away from me get shot in the temple and he got sent Jeez. to the hospital you know, I I saw um, uh, someone get maced right in the face, like at point blank. Um, and they weren't even; they didn't touch the police officers. They didn't do anything. Um, you
1: know, I think yeah. that the police officers. I think the idea of having them in the gear and 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 you know, stand there looking tough and all that is supposed to show like a strength of of law and order, or you know, of the city or whatever. But I think a lot of times it actually has an, an opposite effect. That it, it can legitimize. First of all, if somebody's there, you know, protesting, they might just give up and go home. But if there's a line of cops, you know, giving them, you know, reason to stay, they might stay longer. They might yell louder. That might turn in turn violent. Um, and especially if the protest is about cops like if they're protesting cops not just the cops who are there at the protest but they're actually protesting cops like that i feel like that just gets multiplied in mm-hmm. everything that the police do is now under even more scrutiny because they are not a welcomed force in this situation from the protesters they they can all they can do is sort of make it worse like unless Somebody is actually actively breaking something, or like something that's arrestable. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what purpose the cops have for being there, especially like that, like in military gear and with guns pointing at people. And
2: and in this instance, it was at the front steps of um, APD headquarters. You know, the the protesters took over the interstate right in downtown Austin. and so, it, like from the get go, it was it, it was very intense from the start. Um, but I, I do want to point out too that you know I, I'm a supporter of Black Lives Matter. I've, you know, I'm a, obviously, I'm a supporter of civil rights and everything. But some of the stuff, I you know, I was right there on the front step at the start of it, at the barrier that the police had at the top of the stairs going to APT headquarters and the protesters, and. I, I was baffled for a moment there, too, because I would listen to the protesters and the things that they would yell at the police officers and the things that they would do. And it seemed to me, and I think I've seen this a lot and a lot of people pointed out, is, is these a lot of the protests turn away from the actual point. And so that was something that baffled me as well, witnessing it firsthand. You, was, they were yelling slurs. But just police, all sorts of just saying. horrific yeah. things and personal things at specific officers, or I'm yeah. just like, what? Like, what does that do to help the cause? What are you doing right now that is fighting for civil rights? It, it was something that really confused me as to what mindset do you have that right now at this moment you are helping fight for civil rights? I right? mean, they're just losing their minds and, because and they, that's what it they've was. Not been
1: able to. To you know that maybe they felt oppressed in their life, and they're using this as a way to vent. But that's Mm -hmm. not the right place
2: to do it, right? Yeah. Um, But just witnessing it firsthand, both from the protest protesters' perspective and the police officers' perspective, it was it was very eye opening. That's
1: interesting. Yeah, I mean, and Jerry Wilson, you know, he he he. I think he kind of sensed that's where the things were going. Um, At the time, a lot of people really criticized the fact that he wasn't willing to put those police officers out there. Um, And when he was criticized uh, for, for, quote, not standing behind his men, it was a great, great quote that he had. He said, I don't stand behind my men. I stand in front of them. Because he was the type of person that if he was going to send people in riot gear into a situation, he wanted to be at the front. That he is, wasn't somebody
2: that just sent his minions out. Right, that is my type of leader. Like, yeah, that's, absolutely. That is one hundred percent the leadership that I follow. He refused
1: to do no-knock raids, which was which was uh, something that was very new at the time. We're going to talk about it in a future episode more, but uh, you know, he refused to do that, thinking that it, it, it did more uh, harm than good. And uh, and one of the things I really loved is that he actually used some of the money. To do as the book described, mundane tactics like increasing money to methadone clinics and improve <laughs> and improving street lighting, which I mean, the basic just improving street lighting yeah, can save lives. Yeah, no, that's really,
0: really, truly, brilliant.
2: Like you, you think of the the case of especially in the sixties and seventies where murder was rampant, serial killers were going crazy, and you know, you think of all these innocent women that Mm -hmm. get assaulted and murdered and kidnapped and whatever it may be. And something as simple as extra lighting can save lives.
1: It just, it just takes the whole idea out of the criminal's mind that they're going to get away with it. And, uh, and, you know, I mean now, you know, there's also cameras, things like that, that has also helped, but yeah, but just as something as simple as, as just a light. Actually, one of the things that, that I really like a trend in cities is that they're moving toward um, uh, more like daylight balanced lights, like the cooler white lights, because they're using the. Uh, um, oh my God, I'm blanking out on what they're what's what's the new light type of lights called? I should know this. Like LED. <laughs> LED. There you go.
2: <laughs> Technology. <laughs> I should know this.
1: I work on movies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, LED. Yeah, they, you know they use like LED lights because you know it saves energy and money and all that, but it also has a much more relaxed. Cooler, clearer, um, brighter look to it. So they're taking out all those gross yellow, like orangey lights that you see in a lot of really bad neighborhoods, and they're putting nice, pleasant lights that that actually has an effect on you that makes you feel happier
2: mm-hmm. because
1: that's hmm. what daylight does. Right. Interesting. I find yeah, this, so
2: during this. Um, I find this whole um like Jerry Wilson thing ironic right you you talk about republican versus democrat big government small government and i feel like what jerry wilson is doing is exactly what democrats have been asking for but it, it sounds like what republicans want is they just want police on every street corner monitoring everywhere stopping crime but is that also not like interjecting into personal liberty like it it, it all seems so kind of backwards I it's, it's and a, ironic. It's a
1: macho thing. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a I think it's kind of a male driven macho thing yeah. that you hear a lot in conservatism that there's not enough fighting in the war on drugs.
2: Right.
0: Did you guys hear what's happening in uh, Buckhead? Uh, no. Georgia. Uh, so Buckhead is a very, 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 very wealthy well to do suburb of Atlanta. Mm. Um, okay. And like just very CEOs, you know, whatever. I can't, you know, you get the gist. Beverly Hills of Georgia. Um, well, they they just came out today, I think. They're trying to divorce Atlanta um because they said that they're so <laughs> sick of they're so sick of the lack of police presence that they are currently trying to remove themselves from the Atlanta Police Force, get their own Buckhead Police Force, Buckhead Dispatch Center. Wow. So, so that they can quote unquote uh Something like pummel crime or get hard on crime so the police can do what they're supposed to do. Take a bite
2: out of crime. That's right. Before we move on to the next part, I think these these stats here are really important because I think it paints a huge picture as to what was going on. So under Jerry Wilson, violent crime in D.C. dropped 25% and property crime dropped 28%. Now you compare this to Nixon's national efforts – Violent crime under Nixon's efforts dropped, or they went up, sorry, they went up, went up, my correction, they went up 40% nationwide, and property crime rose 24% nationwide. But yeah, this so in
1: fixing the problem, they, they exacerbated it. Yeah,
2: like hysteria just took over. Um, but with that, uh, let's move on to the uh, kind of where we left off. The war off. on drugs. The war on yeah. drugs takes its first victims
1: okay so there was a uh an organization that was started through the government um odale which stood for the office of office of drug abuse law enforcement i'm sorry but that's odale like
2: that's
0: just O'Dale. i feel like you can't help but say it with a southern uh, accent like odale O'Dale.
2: (laughs) So what was O'Dale? Like what what's their story? What happened? Where are they coming yeah. to play? Um okay.
1: Yeah, so in uh so yeah, O'Dale was around uh in and 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 they started doing uh these raids and this was kind of the Wild West again. Um America basically took a page right out of Francis Ford Coppola and Apocalypse Now. And, uh, and, and they just decided that drugs were the absolute devil and they were going to do anything and everything to, to destroy the drugs, arrest or kill the people, uh, even if they were nonviolent, like literal hippies just hanging out on a farm. That, mm-hmm. So, so the, the craziest one, uh, I do want to, I, I want to go back to another one in a second, but the craziest one in 1972, a raid was done in Humboldt Um, by by the police involved 19 officers and at least one helicopter Um, they attempted to raid a suspected drug lab so they they heard it was a drug lab through an informant by the way for some reason in the 70s informants were just really like wrong a lot they just kind of (laughs) took their word for it and they did all this stuff, and like, and they were wrong, like that's like fifty percent of the time or something. And yet they kept like using the same
2: people. Well, but because they didn't have to be right, every right they, there was nothing
1: in the law that said that if everything
2: you was justified,
1: somebody broke broke into somebody's uh, you know place. If you wrecked the place, it was all being done in the name of 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 goodness, right? Yep. So, so it was everything was fine. It ends justify the means, exactly. Uh, so they actually. They, so they thought it was a drug lab. But what it ended up being um, was a hippie couple and their small bags of weed and LSD. Um, they shot the the man, an unarmed white man, in the back as he ran. Um, I believe it was from the helicopter. I, I could be wrong about oh that part. Oh, my God. That is too but, much. Yeah. And, and these people, you, know, you also have to, like, understand, too, that That from the perspective of the people, this looked like an invasion from a, like a foreign element. Like these were helicopters coming down, people literally, uh, you know, coming down on ropes from the helicopter armed with, you know, these these, tactical,
0: like it's it's absolutely like a tactical military.
1: I mean from their perspective they were being invaded by I don't know who you know Canada or something I don't, you know I mean you know based on you know the looks of the people or whatever th- th- there was there's no way they could have known that the government was going to go this far to try to try to get their their bag of weed <laughs> and uh, and yeah so so they shot him killed him um, never identifying themselves as the law
2: mm-hmm. And uh, by and the so way, after the people are arrested. The officer Clifton, he saw um another agent limping and assumed that that officer had been shot. And so he shot to kill the man who was running away because he saw another officer limp.
1: Right. And there was no coordination basically, you know. So like mm-hmm. they they used things like smoke bombs and stuff like that. And so, you know, there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of of people not knowing what was really going on. So, you know, so it may have been, I guess, kind of justified that he thought that the guy was shooting at the cop or something, but, and and these things do happen, but they shouldn't happen at all because they shouldn't happen to begin Mm -hmm. with, not for this, Uh, you know? And, and so, yeah, the, uh, uh, a photographer, they actually brought a photographer with them, because they thought this was going to be the coolest dang thing ever. This is how
2: confident they were. Like they were ready to show off. This is what we're doing to stop drugs.
1: And the photographer took a picture of the man dead on the ground um, in a very unnatural pose that you would only really have if you were a corpse. Um, and this picture became somewhat famous across the nation in newspapers, even a... Uh, rolling stone actually used an animated version of it um for their cover because they were so shocked by this and they that by this this rise in authoritarianism um that they want they they wanted everyone to know like Mm -hmm. this that how far this had gotten if this could happen in Humboldt (laughs) like this could happen anywhere (laughs) you know and and um and i believe the uh Was this the one that the, that the, the officer had already been like, like a known person for? for
2: Yeah. So it looks like he, um, people, um, yeah. So he had already, um, like beaten up some suspects previously. Um, and the, um, he didn't get any, um, he was just reprimanded. There was no other accountability.
1: Just like the cops in all the movies and the TV shows, right? Later on, right? It's, it's the cops that like, you know, they're, they're the hard boiled cops. They don't, they don't care about Miranda rights and they don't care about the red tape. They, if they need to ask the subject a question, mm-hmm. they do it with their fists. Like this is the ideology that a lot of people look up to, including a lot of police of being, of being the way to do things. But mm-hmm. when it happens in real life, these guys are not helpful in the situation. Yeah. They get, other officers killed as well as as innocent people and bystanders trying to do do their job and you know it's not his fault that the information was bad from the informant that there wasn't really a drug ring or whatever but it was their fault they went in with that amount of force seeing a hippie running and thinking oh this is a good idea um you know let's shoot them
2: well, and so we, we're talking about accountability. And so a district attorney did go in and do an investigation. And they, on the scene, they found, he went to try and basically recreate what happened. Um, uh, basically, Willem Dafoe and Boondock Saints. And um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like exactly the same thing. And uh, he found a tent that was made to look like a drug lab. But what's important to point out is t- there were searches done two days previous and that tent was not there. So it, it made the district attorney believe that it was planted to make it seem as though was, there was actually a drug lab. Um, to it,
1: justify after the fact. Exactly. Basically, of, that, of why they shot and did all these crazy things.
2: And so um, the district attorney went after Clifton um, and he indicted him on second degree murder. Um, it was the first time a charge had been brought against a federal narcotics agent, which is very important to point out. This is a key moment. However, it culminated to nothing because Nixon's, uh, he appointed a federal prosecutor who took the case into federal court and all charges were dismissed on what? Justifiable homicide.
1: It all starts with Nixon. <laughs> all right? Everything. All, all leads and back And we're going to
2: see this a lot. We're going to see this term a lot moving forward. Justifiable homicide. That's... We're going to see it in case after case after case.
1: You know, and it gets so misused. I know we're going to talk about more later, but I I do just want to say like, like there is a place in the law for justifiable homicide because if somebody, if somebody is trying to kill you, you know, you have to kill them and there is protection in the law that says you have the right to do that. So there is justified homicides. However, just because you're a cop does not give you the justification automatically to kill someone. Mm -hmm. There has to be other circumstances. Right. Because you're
0: not the judge and jury. No.
1: And so the quote in the book about this, I thought would just, just to kind of sum this little part of the story up said, in the end, a 24 year old man was chased from his own home by armed men who had just emerged from an army helicopter. They shot him dead in the back while he was unarmed on his own property the heavy-handed raid was based on false pretenses that didn't turn up criminal a uh, criminal enterprise that it was supposed to find, and no one was ever held accountable for it. Dirk Dickinson, which was the person killed, was collateral damage. And the first of hundreds of people who have been killed for stupid reasons or we're completely innocent. Even like that's even worse. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of raids that have happened over the decades that, that, you know, people have died because it was the wrong address. Like they, they were supposed to be in the neighbor's house, but, and they killed them and it was justified. (laughs) That's Justifiable (laughs) homicide. That's not justifiable. Right.
2: It's just, it, it's so crazy. And Curtis and I were talking about this and uh, before we started of, you watch the timeline of how just it gets more and more lax. It gets more and more like, well, we're going to allow this and allow this and allow this. And I think this is a point or in the early 70s where it really starts to take off. That snowball really starts to get rolling in that sense.
1: And I want to mention this other this other story, even though it's really not that important to history. But to me, as a filmmaker... This I saw this in my mind, um, and it, it really, like, it totally just wrenched my heart. So in 1971, also in Humboldt, two cops spent days on a stakeout watching a single pot plant that was growing along a river. Oh so one day, a man came up to it and was starting to admire it. The police officer confronted him mistook a twig he was holding for a gun, killed him. Turns out these two men had known each other their whole life. And the man who was admiring the pot plant, he wasn't the grower. He was a friend of the grower. The friend had told him this pot plant was out there. He just came out there to look at a plant
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: he was killed by an officer (laughs) who is wasting their
0: time for days watching it. Right. That's that's exactly right. Wasting their time. If we're going to talk about not defunding police versus defunding police, can we please make sure that they're not wasting their time on someone looking at a pot plant? Absolutely. I mean, if pot
1: if if the end goal is to take pot off the streets, your day is a waste. Mm-hmm. If that, if your whole career was built on taking marijuana users off the streets, your whole career was a waste. Yeah. Yep. And rather than get angry about that, which I would be, but rather than do that, you have to change. You have to change the laws. You have to change yourself, and you have to put things in perspective of is this actually making society worse, or right. am I? the police officer making society worse by spending, wasting my time following these leads.
2: Well, I'm really interested to, I'm excited to learn more about what it takes to become a police officer and that process in part three of this series, because I don't know how much, and I guess freedom is not a good word, but I'm going to say freedom, like how much freedom police officers get to determine What is important and what is not? Like, how much is it that they have to follow these, like, commands? Just to give, like, a little
1: little hint about what we're going to talk about. Basically, they do have a lot of things that they have to follow. They can't just do anything. But once the thing is done, there is a lot of ways to justify it. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's it goes back to that it's it's better to you know what's that saying like like better to ask for permission or or, or you know worse to ask for for permission than to just try it and ask for, for forgiveness yeah something you know so I think it kind of goes back to that like officially they're not supposed to do a lot of the things they do but once they do it there is a code of protection that very few people get um, so O'Dale uh, conducted fourteen hundred raids many of which without warrant. Dozens of wrong addresses, innocent families terrorized at gun points by cops. Most of the crimes were supposedly committed that were supposedly committed were nonviolent drug crimes. Um, the innocent people that were terrorized by this group would be dismissed as an insignificant detail um, of just cops trying to do their jobs. Um, Odale ended without being renewed be, uh, and and the remaining agencies became the modern day. DEA, the Drug Enforcement Association. Now, I do want to say that things are not quite as bad as they were at the beginning, at least not against middle-class white people. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I think they're probably worse for people of color um, than they have ever been, but for for white people, they have gotten better. Uh, uh, There was a general... Um, backlash in the press because of because of the press and and mm-hmm. the, the attention that they they sh- they shined on this, um, and the reason for that was the public could not get behind middle class white people being treated as criminals. Right. And sadly, if if these people had been the stereotypical cliche um, black criminal that a lot of people have pushed forward. I, I think we might still be dealing with, with helicopters and, and mm-hmm. you know, this happening in, on pot farms. Um, but for whatever, I guess, good you can get out of this, at least they don't do it quite as often, not quite as brazenly,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, not, at least not as big right. <laughs> as they did back then. Well,
2: um, and a big part of why that is no longer today, and it, it's part of this irony that I've been pointing out, is um, thanks to as we talked about it in the first part of the series, the uh, Warren Court years, um, huge defender of uh, the rights of citizens and personal liberty. All of this brought forth what is known as the Castle Doctrine, which is actually an old British law that um, the United States um, kind of adopted after all this. But it it became a huge part of federal rights and. A huge part of states rights
1: yeah and the the main concept behind it is uh, from from the uk was an englishman's home is his castle mm-hmm. um and and the idea is you do not enter my castle lest you want war <laughs> 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 um and like it's one of those things that I think like if there's a libertarian listening right now they just did an f yeah and like honked their horn oh, 100%. or or a Texan <laughs> where we have like if
0: you step on a Texan's property you shoot first ask questions later. I think Montana right? actually
2: has the strongest castle doctrine of um the entire United States. Um, it's they like do. Montana and then Texas, I believe. Um, um alaska yeah, might a, be up there too oh yeah. <laughs> any
1: penguins come onto my property <laughs> there's a joke in the simpsons where uh homer is, is it's a halloween episode so it's, everything's kind of bigger than even mm-hmm. it normally is but he hates his neighbor flanders and and uh and he hears that that anything that you do to someone who's on your property is good and legal and like, and so he's like, "Hey, Flanders, come over here." And and as as Flanders is coming over, uh, Chief Wiggum like whispers in Homer's ear. Uh, it doesn't work if you invite him. And he's going, <laughs> he's like, "Crap, <laughs> Flanders, <laughs> go home."
2: <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, the the castle doctrine is a really messy thing. You know, I remember we had a case in uh, Missoula there um, when I was in high school. So back in two thousand, I think it happened in like two thousand. 11. um right. and there was a case where some a couple high school students one of them being a german foreign exchange student actually broke into they'd been breaking into some garages and it was a part of a game where they would break into garages and then steal beer out of the fridges you know and one night they broke into a garage and uh, the owner of the home came out and the garage door was opened like halfway or whatever and he came out and I think the where the loophole was is he couldn't shoot with lethal force if he wasn't being shot upon or something like that. Right. Um, but he went out and basically blindly shot because they ran out and he blindly shot through the garage door um, at a level that was too, it would have been at their torsos and that was a big part of their debating was he shooting at a lethal angle or not? I think it was determined he was, um, but there's
1: there's something else you're not saying though, that like, what I missed This guy actually left his garage door open
2: right? cuz he people he baited from him yes so he
0: could do this.
2: That's right. That was it because it'd been happening in the neighborhood, that's right, and he baited them to come do it by leaving his garage door open. That's why it was open halfway.
0: That's like a a bad CSI episode. Like mm-hmm. that's horrifying.
2: <laughs> but he he ended up he shot and killed this German foreign exchange student. And I remember in my German class we had Henrietta Lurvich, who is uh, she was a journalism teacher at UM, and she came and talked to us in my German class, and we talked about it. And um, she, I I believe, she like met the uh, the kid's family. They came here, and um, there it was a big struggle to figure out how to get his body back to Germany. Um, But I remember that was the first time I had really heard about the Castle Doctrine, and it was an absolute mess. Like it was a huge mess
1: it's actually used on both sides of the cop debate too, because, um, so, so it's so, so there was at least one case, um, that I read about where a, um, a night watchman, he was, uh, a neighborhood watchman. He was, a. Uh, off-duty, but he saw someone that he he thought was suspicious. They were suspicious because they were wearing a hoodie, and they were black. There was no other real reason. But he did, you know, I guess there were a break-in or something, break-ins that would have been happening, so he was on edge or whatever, and uh, he approached the person. Something happened that's a little unclear about uh, a scuffle that happened. A uh, person ended up being shot and killed, um, and he claimed self-defense. And so... The Castle Doctrine also kind of covers this idea of like of of justifiable homicide. um, If you're in self-defense, if you're protecting your life or your property, um, like meaning either literal home property or your car or something like that, um, that that you can get away with it. Um, As far as I know, uh, his name was Zimmerman. He he did. Mm -hmm. uh, it, It was successful. He did get away with it. Um, but it was always a little bit shrouded in, in, in doubt as to whether or not the person actually intended him harm um, or not. Um, so it's also used by people to defend uh, shooting people uh, that, uh, that are encroaching upon them or their, their space um, at the same time as a defense against police and raids breaking into your home Uh, without a warrant or sometimes uh, a lot of people think that even with a warrant it's still not right it shouldn't be legal to to break into your home unless there's an actual emergency Um, so it's used against cops and it also is used for cops so right about this time uh this this is sort of the early 70s there were there was a lot of rules that were changing because of the public outcry the dea set up a a lot of new rules that, that uh, in which they had to personally sign off a no knock uh, drug warrants, which is something that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, Now it's just Mm -hmm. a judge usually signing hundreds of these. Right. Um, And so it's the, the scrutiny that was going on then is not at all what it goes on. Now you can get a no knock drug warrant for almost any reason without question. Um, Mm -hmm. There was one judge um, that the book mentioned that had been responsible for like it was like like fifty plus percent of all of the city's warrants. And in like his entire time on the bench, he had only like questioned like a couple of them. Like wow. out of thousands. Um and even the ones he questioned, he ended up going with the police's opinion that that this was this needed a no-knock warrant because they could get rid of evidence or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, But at this time, um, um, a lot of uh, conservatives actually were against no-knock raids, um, and they spoke out quite a bit um, about the bad cops and bad police um, practices. Uh, This quote from the book, uh, tough-on-crime law-and-order rhetoric had been a winner. Most, quote-unquote, ignored Americans— didn't think of themselves as criminals, and so they could never picture themselves in need of a Miranda warning, an empathetic judge, or the advantages of preparing a defense from outside of a jail cell. But these Americans experiencing the no-knock raids and those people that were killed in Humboldt had homes, and many of those people that were on the other end of these raids were gun owners, so they basically looked like them. uh, They the a group. Uh, they were likely to revere the Castle Doctrine. And so no polling ex- data exists exactly at the time, um, but the increased media coverage did uh, lead to a lot more stringent rules at the time, at least, uh, for what kind of raids could be done.
2: This, this definitely seems like an instance where the hysteria couldn't really keep up with the fear that people had or the protection that people had over their personal well-being. Where this was an instance where, oh, if this happened to me, this would not mm-hmm. be good because it could happen to me.
1: Right. There's been several politicians that that have kind of gotten themselves in trouble because they'll say something like, "Oh, if somebody broke into my house, I'd shoot them right away." Right. And then they get in trouble with saying, "Wait, did you just say you would shoot a cop?" And and they have to like back off on that, even though they they would be just like anyone. You know, fearful for their life, not knowing it's a cop, and they would probably shoot at them. But, but they they don't know where to stand on this. It's a very confusing thing for especially for con- for conservative politicians.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, I know I would be terrified if my door got caved in and my house was raided by a bunch of cops. Like that'd be terrifying.
1: Well, and you wouldn't know they were cops. You would yeah. think this is a home invasion or something. Like you don't know who the bad guy is when you're woken up at two a.m. Uh, cool. and, and especially if you're an innocent person and you're, and your neighbor was actually the one that they should have broken into. Like, can we do that? Well, like-
0: I know that this is like, cont- uh, you know, this is some people, some people think this is up for debate, but that's what Brianna Taylor's boyfriend said was when he had a gun ready to shoot the cop, right? He thought they were, there was someone breaking into their house. Mm-hmm. Like they were terrified. They didn't know it was the police.
2: Right.
1: Well, and, and I mean, and, and even if you are a, a person that, that say sells drugs or does drugs, That doesn't mean that you are also a violent criminal. So, you know, so you might not have shot at somebody at at, if you knew they were the police, you might have been really docile about it. But because these people are using this force and breaking in, now you are have raised yourself to a violent criminal because you don't know who they are.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we would all have the same reaction, right? If we woke up in the middle of the night and someone was banging in our door, I would grab the nearest weapon. Like, yeah. It just seems like a very normal reaction. So it's crazy to expect people to act inhuman. Yeah. I, I mean,
1: I guess they expect, like, you're in the middle of the night. The, the window gets broken. I guess before you shoot them, you're supposed to say, wait, are you the cops or are you the bad guy? <laughs> <laughs> like, you have to identify yourself or it's not legal. Like <laughs> Right. So in 1974, this is kind of an interesting, like, like tie back into a lot of, like, occult, American Americana culture that I just I hear so much about this like they're making another movie about it coming out pretty soon. This was a big a big part of so many different movies about the 70s. We're going to talk about Patty Hearst for just a second. And there was a really successful uh, SWAT moment that was broadcast across the nation. It captured everyone's attention um, when the SWAT was uh, taking down the the Symbianese Liberation Army who had taken Patty Hearst um, uh, a uh, an arguably innocent um girl who, who was brainwashed or at least just young and stupid mm-hmm. and decided to be part of these people. Um, and uh and and they they uh they were definitely an organization that meant to do harm. I believe they took over a bank. Um that's where and that's what the uh the situation was and so it was not like the Black Panthers who basically just you know were were holding guns defense and didn't didn't do harm unless they were provoked. Like these people were actual, like Like kind of like domestic terrorists.
2: They were active.
1: Yeah. And this was exactly the situation that you want SWAT teams. Like you want militarized cops. You don't want everyone to be that way, but when the situation calls for it, Mm -hmm. you want this special team to go out for this. And no one is arguing against that.
2: (laughs) If you, if you want a, uh, a good uh, tell of uh, Patty Hearst, I guess, Kidnapping and joining of this group uh, watch that episode of drunk history Um, It's very entertaining.
1: (laughs) Drunk history is surprisingly um, A surprisingly great source of information. I remember the guys that 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 uh, Runs that show. He said something like 90% of what we say is accurate like Mm -hmm. and that is plenty
2: because they hire to write the scripts that the actors and comedians read they hire a bunch of uh, UCLA history students, yeah, to write it. So they, it, it's not bad.
1: <laughs> I mean, some days, you know, they might make a drunk history episode out of one of our episodes. Hey. So that would be really cool. <laughs> we can only I, dream,
2: right? The day will come. I would
1: love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so nineteen seventy-five SWAT teams are the coolest thing in America. Um, you know, the whole culture of America just falls in love with it. Partly because there's a new show called SWAT, um, and uh, and and due to that popularity, cops across the nation wanted to copy what they were doing in the big cities um, in their medium-sized to small cities. Um, so, uh, so you know, in the bigger cities, SWAT teams were used well in some cases to take to take down violent situations, but in smaller cities they might not have been quite as needed Um, Mm -hmm. and the people who were joining the SWAT teams were not getting the same level of education and training um, and prevention of violence that the people in the big cities had gotten. So, you know, in some cities, like if the whole, if the whole squad was only like 30 people, everyone got in, (laughs) there was no like passing a bar. It was just like, everyone's also a SWAT SWAT team
2: member. (laughs) Time to call the SWAT team. We're already here. Like
1: (laughs) Right. I know, we're already here. Why we we just gotta put on some vests and hold some bigger guns and there we go. Now now uh you know this town of five thousand people, we have our very own SWAT team to protect the water tower.
2: (laughs) To protect the water tower. tower. (laughs) Oh, it's a good touch.
1: Um, so yeah, so the, the rise of the warrior cop talks at length um, about uh, this report from this um, this scholar uh, who did some research on SWAT teams and actually uh, went on several SWAT raids and, and kind of just bunkered in with a lot of SWAT teams and the guy's name was Kra- Kraska um, and he, uh, he 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 quoted different things that the police were saying and in this report. It was kind of it was kind of scary because for the first time people started understanding that police weren't just doing this because they had to; they were doing it because they got a lot of fun out Mm -hmm. of being SWAT teams and kicking down people's doors.
2: Right. We talk about with uh, in DC where they had the what was it It was the mundane tasks,
0: right? And when when you
2: yeah, when you talk about sensationalizing police work you don't want the mundane task of putting in regulating streetlights and you know, all that you want to kick down some doors and stop crime. You know, you want
1: to be a hero. And I get that. And there is something really great about that kind of a person, but only when it's needed,
2: there's actually a movie and I can't remember what it's called, but it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was made in like 2016 or something. And he's, he's, you know, he was, (laughs) I know he was this big time police officer in Los Angeles. And now he's in this, Small town where he's the sheriff and he has two deputies and (laughs) the young deputy, he dreams of being a cop in the big city and he (laughs) wants to go do what he did and Ari is like, you know, it's not as great as you think and he's about to be transferred. Not as great as you think. Right. And then the big (laughs) conflict happens and he dies. Spoiler alert. Um, But it plays along the lines of like what do you want to do when you go into police work you want to be the hero you want to kick down doors you want to do the sensationalized things that at this time everyone was talking about and everyone thought was needed
1: and this guy that wrote the report Kraska he had a really great quote that was that was in in the rise of the warrior cop he said uh he that so so he so he wanted so the the SWAT team basically wanted him to to shoot at a target. They were at like a, like a target range and, and they were kind of like, you know, being men, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, and he missed his target. And suddenly he found himself defending his manhood to these strangers that, that mm-hmm. otherwise much of a part of this study that he was doing. And the quote is, I, I realize that in a sense, I am basking in the security of my temporary status as a beneficiary of state sanctioned use of force. But on a personal level, what disturbs me most was how I, as a person who had so thoroughly thought out militarism, could have so easily enjoyed experiencing it uh, that this study illustrates the expansive and seductive powers of deeply embedded ideologies of violence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so in a way, like, like this became addicting uh, right. to a lot of cops. You know, um, it's like a lot of cops described it as a huge rush, you know, like, it, like this was the reason they became cops.
2: I'm sure it has to be. I mean, it's similar to me when I'm uh, photographing protests and riots. Right. You know, I'm like when I'm in those moments, like, yeah, it's dangerous and there's a lot of stuff going on. But I'm like, let's go. Like, you know, this is why I'm doing this. And,
1: and, you know, they were kind of, the book was kind of theorizing that, that maybe this huge rush is, is, and it's kind of in a similar way to a drug and people want that, that feeling. So rather than do the safer thing of like waiting for an easier or safer time to arrest somebody and just doing it in a small way, they would rather kick down somebody's door at 2am, you know, yell, get down on the ground, because that is, more appropriate to what they feel a cop should be
2: Mm -hmm.
1: so yeah we're going to get more into no knock raids and all that stuff in a later episode but we we should move on dalen do you want to do the one on forfeiture i feel like this one is like i feel like it's just kind of
2: right up your alley I, I don't know why you think forfeiture is up my alley. Because um,
1: because like you and I are both nerds, and Kara, you are too. We're all, we're all nerds, and like Thank you. The, like and like the idea that that like money is 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 incentivizing mm-hmm. um where police have gone is just such like a nerdy like like thing. So yeah. okay,
2: so as Curtis <laughs> writes here, a cash cow for police departments was made legal at this time and as we just mentioned forfeiture so up until the 1970s the government couldn't take property that wasn't directly used in a crime and I think that's that's really important because that's an easy way to manipulate things but then
1: up to that time the only thing they could do uh, for example if they shut down a brothel like they could shut down the brothel it, but they couldn't take the money that, the brothel right uh, was used, you know, or the, you know, the the money came from to buy somebody a car or something like that.
2: And so, in 1981, uh, a GAO. What is GAO? It's a
1: government report. I've is actually, I've, I've heard that before. Yeah, it's I forget what it stands for, but it's it it's basically just a a, a report the government right. does.
2: So it was commissioned by now president and then Delaware senator. Joe
0: Biden.
2: Government Accountability Office. Oh, Government Accountability Office. Thank you. And um, uh, so um, a 1981 GAO report commissioned by Joe Biden, then Senator of Delaware, um, uh, it was commissioned to have uh, Reagan's people, um, the idea that government wasn't utilizing forfeiture nearly enough and it was an opportunity to collect this revenue um, or opportunity to collect this revenue was being wasted. So basically this report saw it as they were wasting a chance to make money. They're wasting a chance to bring in money. Um, So the law originally intended to take mobsters things um, didn't pass until the seventies and wasn't used until Reagan this broadly. Um, Nixon thought it was uh, easily misused and didn't want to try it, which I think that was a thing (laughs) that Nixon did actually quite a bit Is he saw things and was like, eh, we'll we'll go away from that. And then he just went really hard into other things. Yeah, I mean, Um, it's
1: like, it's bad. If Nixon thinks it's too much, (laughs) that's, you know, it's bad. (laughs) Even Nixon was like, I don't know, guys.
2: But I think people, and I think Joe Biden, especially early early in his career, he was so eager to prove himself Mm -hmm. that Joe Biden went hard on a lot of these things and a consistent thing that was there as we're seeing with nixon and reagan is the war on crime the war on drugs well, it was a consistent and this thing is
1: perfect this is perfect because for joe biden because it's a moderate issue so he's a democrat he likes to tax things so this is kind of a tax but it's a tax on criminals so the average person is going to be like that's not me that's somebody else so they're going to be more okay with it because it punishes criminals but brings in revenue so that's like like i can't think of a more perfect moderate standpoint uh for for joe biden to want to show both sides that he could you know walk the line
2: Mm -hmm. and so this was also the point where reagan brought in the fbi to the drug war and the fbi had actually been resistant on this because they saw it mostly as a losing issue and it often brought a lot of corruption um, yeah, because
1: it motivates cops to to take to take things first and and figure out if it's legal later.
2: Exactly, but they started small. They started actually focusing on marijuana with the classic "it's a gateway drug," and so they started on marijuana take users. The <laughs> exactly, That's exactly. It's exactly what they're going to do, and so they started uh, really focusing hard on marijuana, and I think. Um, we see through all the way through the 90s, the DEA goes really hard on marijuana.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that, that, that this mentions here, too, is that so at, at the same time, so marijuana was really common, right? right? So it was something they considered to be an untapped revenue source. Um, and because, I mean, reg, just I don't want to say regular people. That's not, that's kind of getting away from like the us and them thing. But, mm-hmm. but it's like, I just say a majority of people. Had connections to marijuana that didn't necessarily have further connections to other drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there was a. It was just a a, a wider net that they could cast. But at this, but in order to do that, like they had to vilify marijuana even more than it already had been.
2: Right. Um,
1: you know, and 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 talk about just how terrible it really was.
2: Well, it's funny you said you you just said you know, you don't want to split us and them. You said you know regular people. But that's literally exactly what they did. And so they they brought in this guy, Carlton Turner, who you have down as the drug czar. Um, And so at the time, he was America's only legal uh, pot plant or pot plant researcher. Researcher. And he had his own pot plot where he would research marijuana. And so they brought him as basically their expert on marijuana. (laughs) And he he was just completely talking one-sided. He... He actually asked libraries to remove any previous reports that suggested treatment of drug users uh, to rehabilitation. Just took out anything that rehab helped Uh, drug users.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and specifically marijuana. Like, so they knew at that time that marijuana had a lot of really positive benefits for people, like cancer victims, you know, or or cancer patients. And and so he had actually he actually had the libraries remove the research that that could have helped people because they they really wanted this drug to be the devil and nobody to like it for any reason and it also had an extra effect of they could put it at the worst level the worst classification of what um uh, of what drugs could be classified as because if a drug has a medicinal use it gets put lower automatically mm-hmm. like if it's helpful to society so he removed all references to that.
2: Well, now with this drug czar in place, and now with the focus put so much on marijuana, Reagan actually moved his attention away from programs that uh, treated drug addiction and treated, you know, with rehabilitation because according to this drug czar, it didn't work. It was, it was impossible. They were lost causes. And so they've put all of their focus of uh, pot users into law enforcement and it's Curtis you highlighted here um some people were just born bad which is a big yeah. statement
1: it is um uh, it's um it's a really unfortunate one it's the these people don't deserve help they are uh evil from the get-go and the fact that they do drugs proves it and like there's this interesting cyclical thinking from from this argument that like like the drug makes a person bad and the person's bad because they do the drug you know like like it's it's it's, it's, it's a it, people that
0: think like that just to me sh- i mean it's just ignorance right like if you don't understand the nuances and complications that lead people to drug use then you just you're ignorant and yeah. that's all there is to it there's i don't really think there's an argument there other than ignorance right well
2: and we we see reagan who is the the king of modern day republicanism where and I, Just say no. I, it's yeah. It's it's the common theme that I pointed out. It's this this irony of big government versus small government, where Reagan repetitively criticized the expansion of government, but he also asked for new powers to stop drug proliferation. He asked for new powers to fight drugs. He asked for new powers to stop marijuana. You know, it was this it was this constant back and forth of no government, but we need more government and more power. To stop the things that we want to stop
1: that's why i have more respect for liber- libertarians than just say a republican because libertarians usually take their belief to its its logical end uh, whereas republicans will be like small government small government oh wait you want to get an abortion big government's going to stop you right oh you want to smoke pot big government's going to stop you whereas libertarians like okay i don't like abortion i don't like pot but i don't think it's the government's right tell you
2: not Mm -hmm. to well and even reagan he kind of went with the contradiction by saying just blaming everything on big government all the bad stuff was because of big government but in order to stop big government you need big government to prevent the bad things that have been caused by people. it's like it's it's, it's exhausting
1: <laughs> and, and Reagan doubled down on this idea of of crime being out of control and it, and we're always just one step away from anarchy therefore we need the thin blue line to protect us from it and the quote here from Reagan was for all for all our science and sophistication all of our justified pride and intellectual accomplishment We must never forget the jungle is always there waiting to take us over. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, that's almost a racist statement. Like, I I could see that being a dog whistle, um, you know, against people who are black and brown. Um, I I hope he didn't mean it that way. Who knows? I actually don't know a ton about Reagan. Um, But to me, that really kind of um, just it just felt wrong how he put that. So in 1991, uh, the military uh, cooperation with Law Enforcement Act was passed, um, which further encouraged the military to train drug police on military tactics um, and to have the police access to military intelligence um, in terms of drug smuggling. So this was the first time that the military was married Mm -hmm. with the police forces, um, which kind of gets us into that territory of, is the police now a standing army that the forefathers specifically did not want us to 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 have mm-hmm. because that's what we got away from and you know in in with the kings and 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 you know in the the army that would march through the streets and all that stuff like that that is not american and and was never supposed to be part of the deal but here we go where they're working together for a good reason they think because you know this idea of eliminating drugs but they're doing so at the peril of, of our liberty.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and we're seeing this snowball continue and it got to the point where now even Reagan wanted to expand asset for forfeiture power to make it easier for the government to take property away from people who have never even been charged with a crime. That's absurd. Like that Absolutely just sounds, that's literally just theft.
1: Like It's the, it's you're guilty until proven innocent, which is right. not yeah. the way the law is supposed to work.
0: No, it does not work that
2: way. <laughs> but I, it seems like at the time where that was the case, like that was how they did things. It's, it feels like. So in
1: 1968, there was a law that actually exempted specifically real estate from the types of property that could be seized. 1978. Reagan, sorry. Excuse me. 1978. Um, that um, and that law was removed. That distinction was removed uh, okay. from Reagan. So now, now you could have your house taken away. If the government said that they found um, a pot plant on your property, it was as simple as that.
2: And to even further it, here comes our boy, Joe Biden again, (laughs) Um, just continuously eager to be tough on crime. He preempted Republicans with a bill of his own on asset forfeiture, which was that, is this the 1982 crime bill? Yep. So 1982 crime bill that passed 95 to one. Like, yeah, so there was
1: there was no debate against this at the time. People were all in on this idea. Democrats did not want to seem weak, mm-hmm. um, and Republicans were they were just they were just all for it because it was the criminals that were that were you know going to be affected, not real people, right?
2: Not not people that deserve protection. There was so much support for this by the American public that if you did not stand with it. You, there was just no way for you to win as a politician you there was you just could not succeed
1: this was the 911 like like of its time like as far as like the patriot act that was kind of the same thing right. like when they passed the patriot yeah. act like i believe it was like 3 days after september 11th yes. happened which took away a lot of liberties which created a whole government department of you know of homeland security and all that that like there was one person in all of congress in the foreign what is it 435 people something like that um there was one person that voted against it and there's a great interview with that person um on an episode of radio lab that I, I i ask you to please look up because it was one of the first podcasts i ever heard and they basically say i love my country i wanted to to, you know to support America But this was not the way to do it And be, and because I voted against this I was called names by everyone mm-hmm. You know so one person Stood up against the Patriot Act when it happened Same thing here There was very very little debate against it
2: mm-hmm. Well it's similar to uh, It was Jeanette Rankin Was the only person to vote against Bull or she was the only person To vote against World War I And then I think one of two people to vote against World War II Right and just yeah. for
1: reference uh she's a montana figure right she was the first woman senator is that yes. right Yes
2: yep yeah and she was uh she was a pacifist that was one of her things
1: Right Yeah so yeah it's you know sometimes you find yourself at odds with with the entirety of congress just because you question if something is too severe or not mm mm-hmm. Mhm um, so, yeah, so the so Reagan copied the task force idea. Uh, it, it made these huge headlines that he was getting real tough on crime and tough on drugs and drug smuggling. Um, uh, and he even asked uh, America's jails and prisons uh, to start expanding because there was going to be a big influx of, of drug users coming into America's jails, which would, absolutely is what happened. Um, a lot of people who were not criminals outside of doing drugs um, had their lives ruined by by this crime mm-hmm. bill, which is one of the main reasons a lot of um, black people today were not real excited about Joe Biden being yeah. the president.
2: Well, and this all ties in. So one, they needed more money. So forfeiture became a huge focus because they needed to find a way to bring in revenue. And two, as we talked in our private prisons episode, this is what jolted the prison industry back to life was all of this.
1: And the libertarians are going to love this because this was incentive, right? Like, so police, if they weren't already completely focused on on taking out the drugs from their community, now they were. Because with things like forfeiture, with things like the money that they were getting directly from the federal government, they had to show specifically that they were fighting crime, they were fighting drugs, whether like like it was not as 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 it didn't show as well on them, and it, they didn't get as much money if they simply stopped a murderer from killing a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. It was much, much better to to stop low level drug offenders and put them away in jail to show that they were actually, um you know using the money correctly and that they maybe even needed more money because they could do even better
2: it's kind of their version of and we we talked about this a little bit in the last episode their version of like the informal ticket quotas of they need to arrest oh so many people to justify the money and thus get more money
1: absolutely and there was this organization that started C-A-M-P, camp where the hell do they come up with these <laughs> um they conducted 524 raids, uh, arrested 128 people, seized 65,000 marijuana plants, many of which were actually uh, – oh, that was in their first year. Nationally, uh, other programs conducted 20,000 raids, destroyed 13 million uh, marijuana plants, and made 5,000 arrests. But a lot of those marijuana plants were just growing naturally because guess what? It's a freaking plant. It just
2: grows. Do you – i guess i didn't even realize pot plants grew wild in the united states
1: yeah i mean you know that that's how we discovered that it had those properties it it goes back to like native american traditions they just put it in pipes and it felt good therefore (laughs) they kept using it, it
2: felt good and what's the crime in that
1: I always uh, say like, how, like, you know, how many things did they smoke before they got to pot? You know, like right. <laughs> they just they just like smoked everything and just kind of like, oh, that's not that great. No, that's not that great. <laughs> it's like uh, this, we tried to smoke, uh, I don't know, uh, you, you know, uh, asbestos and it made us cough. So asbestos. we uh, <laughs>
2: and now I have cancer
1: um, and now, like and now, I need, and now I need pot. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so now we're in the '80s. Uh, good old '80s. <laughs> uh, There's some interesting court cases that that we can cover here.
2: And you have so it's uh, 1983 Illinois versus Gates, and you have a, a question here, Mark. It's is an anonymous letter enough cause to do a raid? Which maybe it's yes. just me. <laughs> maybe it's just me, but I feel like the obvious answer should be no. <laughs>
1: I feel like this is the precursor to like, you know, pearl clutching white people being like, there's a black guy barbecuing and I think they look suspicious. Like, is that enough to like send in the cops? Like, no, (laughs) you know, like, like they don't actually look suspicious. They're just doing a barbecue. And, uh, and this is kind of like the old fashioned version of that. Somebody Mm -hmm. wrote a letter and was like, I think there's something bad going on here.
2: So in in Illinois v. Gates, um, there were there were two things before this uh, that need to be proven: um, that info from an informant was reliable enough to establish probable cause. So one was that an informant was uh, credible, creditable,
1: mean, meaning that that their numbers were high enough. Yes. Although that wasn't always the case. I, mean, I was saying like you know, fifty percent of of their of their advice turned out to be true or something like that. Right. Actually, might be. Considered reliable by by a court or by by a police officer
2: and number two that the information was factual enough to reasonably think that the accusation might be true So if the informant isn't creditable enough, if there is enough facts backing up their accusation backing up their claim then it is uh, deemed uh, established probable cause um, but they ruled that uh, totality of the circumstances was enough to determine probable cause without having to meet both or either of those requirements.
1: And this started that idea of do it first, ask for forgiveness later, because no matter what they did, they could just say the totality of the circumstances was enough that we felt we had to go in. And they say, well, what was the actual you know totality of the circumstances well you know some guy said that that you know they had a pot plant in there and and you know he had been there the day before so that was enough and when they and then they're like well why'd you kick, it, kick down the wrong door they're like oh well we had bad information but that's not our fault mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like like you know we met our basic requirements and and you'll just have to figure it out in the courts later
2: in uh, 1984 u.s versus leon Good faith, quote unquote, good faith in cops guess was enough for search warrants. So it's literally like, I've got a hunch. All right, here's a search warrant.
1: Well, it's because, you know, cops are revered in our society by most people. Yeah. Um so you want to believe them, you know, um, but at the same time you do have to understand that they are people. And just like anyone else, they see things incorrectly. They might lie if they have, you know, a reason to do so. And and, and, and the I it, it's nice to think that a cop, everything a cop says is 100% the truth. You want to believe that, but that is just not human nature. But this case says, if they say so, the good faith
2: is we believe them. Mm-hmm. And is, is this next one? Is this Knicks versus Williams? Is that 1984 as well?
1: I didn't write it down and I don't remember. It was, it was all if if, I think I wrote them down in rough order. So I believe it was in right around 84,
2: roughly 1984 Nix versus Williams. And this one's really scary. So if police find evidence during an illegal search that they would likely have found if they had conducted a search legally, the exclusionary rule doesn't apply if, uh, needing probable cause. So basically, uh, the incentive to do things the right way or else, uh, Uh, risk-making evidence illegitimate was taken away in these rulings. So what this This, did, what this did was if they did an illegal search and they found evidence that if they had done a legal search they would have found, then they can use that in court regardless of it being an illegal search.
1: I call this the It's It's All Good Act. Because you can justify any mistake as long as you end up finding something. Mm-hmm. It's the search for it's the search for a criminal. like So imagine <laughs> by any means it, imagine it the Warren Court's decision by the way, yeah. that was the exclusionary rule that was that was what we were talking about with the Warren yes. Court. So it undid that idea.
2: So imagine someone uh, someone does uh, police officers do a no knock warrant on your home, the wrong home, But in your home, they find drugs. They could charge you for possession of those drugs, even though they did an illegal no-knock warrant at the wrong address at your home. Like, that's terrifying. Or if they go into your home and they're doing it the right place and they find something, like, not even a part of it, they can add that to your charges. And that's terrifying to me.
1: So this next one adds to the incentive incentivization of police. Um, so it, in 1984, there, were, there was a law that gave police um, a, an actual cut of the assets that, they, that the criminals that, that the criminals had that they auctioned off, and it went directly to the precinct. So before this, it, I believe it went to the federal government. So there was very little incentive for an actual local precinct to really like you know go after the, the, these high asset criminals but now if you got a high a a criminal that had a lot of assets um you could really bring in the money for your precinct and so you know it it was a huge incentive um to to actually wait until the person had the most assets Mm -hmm. and then arrest them because you could get the biggest payday
2: and even at that on the opposite end, going after as many as possible to try and catch that person with the most assets, you know, imagine yeah. catching Pablo Escobar. I'm like... I, I,
1: I mean, I feel like this is like almost like, like, like right for like a, a board game or something, you know, it's like, like you, can you get the, you know, biggest drug asset, you know, forfeiture, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, can, can you, you know, will your police precinct be the, be the richest in, in California or whatever. Uh, it's it became like this hunt for the for the the biggest prize and, mm-hmm. and when police start seeing things that way it's not like let's just make our community better it's like how can we bring in more how can we get bigger how can we bring in more money um and it's not like they're not starting off from a place of being poor you know this is not like a like a a a low income school or something like that that is just you know trying to get newer books or something like these are you know precincts that are all already doing really well and this just magnified this problem of incentivization of of going after drugs um even more during this time uh there's a lot of people that had really you know had a lot of land and there would be like a single uh, pot plant found on their land that they might not even known was there that somebody else just planted or maybe it just grew naturally and they actually had to prove their innocence. And if they didn't, their land could be taken away. Wow. Um, Yeah. I mean, it was, it was scary. This is like, this is like 1984 shit, you know? I mean, this is, this is really um, this is government big brother, basically right in your business accusing you and you have to prove your innocence. Wasn't this literally
2: 1984? Didn't you
1: say that? Yeah, I didn't actually actually mean to yeah that, but yeah, you're right. 1984
2: was a busy year.
0: When the tapes are, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) in the worst way.
1: (laughs) Back to Daryl Gates, one of the most important figures um, in policing, um, was head of the LAPD. Yep. Um, He, one of the things he's most famous for, depending on how you look at this whole thing, is either famous because it makes him a badass. Or because he took it, the SWAT team idea and raids to the absolute extreme, and this is actually depicted in the film uh, uh, "Straight Out of Compton." Did I get that right? Wait, it's Compton, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I I've I've seen so many memes where it was like "straight out of" you know, like (laughs) Brooklyn or whatever. That like I had to remember what the original one was. Um, But yeah, you know, this is actually depicted in the movie "Straight Out of Compton," where he actually got permission well he actually did it and got permission later but either way he got, he he got an armored vehicle with a battering ram and actually started busting down people's walls Jesus. in order to make sure he got the drugs before before they um, they could get rid of them
2: and also he got this vehicle under the guise of Olympics protection because they're right. And he just, he just kept it. And then he painted it blue. Um, I mean,
1: the only thing he could have done that would have been more ridiculous is he could have played like the Olympics music as he was busting it down. He should have
2: been the person like carrying the torch as he drove this thing right. down the yeah. oh stadium, you know?
1: <laughs> oh my, I mean, I, he probably had dreams like this. This guy was, he really saw himself in a much different light than I think history is going to see him. Um, 1984, again, Reagan signed that the National Security Division Directive 221, which designated illicit drugs a threat to U.S. national security, in addition to adding uh, to the drug interdiction responsibilities of agencies like the CIA and the State Department. Um, so they he basically brought the drug uh, war to more departments that had to deal with it. Um, and... Uh, and and further incentivize them than going after
2: it. It's actually really funny. If, if anyone's, have any of y'all watched Narcos?
1: I haven't seen that on Netflix. So
2: in it, so it's the DEA, these two DEA agents going after Pablo Escobar and they share like an office at the embassy um, in Colombia with the CIA, the CIA agents. And basically throughout the entire show, it's the running theme that the CIA just does not care about the drugs. They just do not care about stopping Pablo Escobar or anything. It's just a headache for them basically. And so they always just get pissed at the DEA agents who take it so seriously. And so it's just kind of it, it's a, a funny thing that they show as <laughs> the CIA was just like, like it's just this, drugs. It doesn't matter <laughs> to us. Like we have more important <laughs> things to focus on. So in 1987,
1: um, a law Congress a passed order the Secretary of Defense and the U.S. Attorney General to notify local law enforcement enforcement agencies each year about the availability of surplus military equipment. Um, the 1033 program was the one set up the um, from the Pentagon, um, and it and it actually to this day is is something that they they specifically contact police departments to give them surplus military equipment. Hmm. So this is a reason why you don't want the military to just keep gaining money even when we're not in the war because it creates a surplus. That stuff that's supposed to be used, like drones, supposed to be used on, on you know enemy combatants is suddenly in the hands of Mayberry Police Department and they're using it to stop people smoking pot. Like wow. that's essentially the... The, the the line of events that happened over and over again, and is happening today.
2: It just seems so overboard. <laughs> like, it is. Well, and it's funny because I think, like, without looking at this, most people say, oh, well, it was to stop the cartels, it was stop this. But when you look at why things were actually created, it is as simple as that. It was to stop people from smoking weed. Like, it, it just escalates to such grand proportion that it's just like, <laughs> oh, my God you really have to think about it oh go ahead
0: no i was gonna say get a life (laughs) i I was kind of gonna
1: say the same thing like i would say like you know you have to ask yourself who's creating the chaos is it the you know the the guy smoking a doobie or is it you kicking in the door like Mm -hmm. like, you're creating the chaos
0: i understand that the reasoning for a lot of this drug you know craze was because, like, the source of drugs. And I think that yes. that's where you want to be concerned because a lot of times the source of growing drugs that are, are illegal is dangerous. It's very mm-hmm. narcos-like, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's it puts people in bad situations. So, like, that's your issue. Okay. But I, I, I get that. I don't understand, yeah, necessarily going after the person smoking the joint. Like, by that time you've lost, you know, you're done. The chain yeah. of command is done. Like, like yeah. let it go. Well,
1: you're kicking so, in the doors of suburbs at that point. It's, right. it's so
0: strange to me to, like, focus your efforts on those people. Well, but at that point, we're, we're done with it.
2: But I think you have to look at the perspective, though, right? Like, it was so hard to capture drug kingpins. It was so hard to yeah. capture the people running these cartels. So what do you do? You focus on the people who are in your backyard because those are the people that are out front. Those are the people where you see their faces.
1: It's a low fruit, though. I mean, yeah. it's, it's like, how much good are you yeah. doing? You know, the person that is it has already messed up their life that basically just needs help. You but know, you're calling how, them a
2: criminal and you're, and you're ignoring the source. How much does it matter how much good you're actually doing or how much good the public thinks? thinks you're actually doing. Right? Right. And so perception was a huge part of it because they knew they couldn't catch Pablo. They knew they couldn't catch many of these large cartels that it was basically like three cartels that were running it um, out of uh South America and Mexico. And so if they could create the perception that something was being done, and I think it got to the point where they convinced themselves that something was actually being done that's i feel like matters more than actually stopping the true bad guys well and a lot of what cops do
1: get totally ignored like your story about about the cop that uh you know helped push the the guy's car to the gas station you know stuff like that the community policing is important so you know when you have these debates about eliminating the police they're not really usually at least talking about things like that like the things that that are actually good deeds and actually Mm -hmm. things that actually matter it's it's this stupid stuff that we get entangled in because somebody thought that you know that this person doing this drug um would be better you know in a jail cell than in
2: a a clinic right or on their couch just smoking a bowl like you know whatever it may be um but We've talked about it a lot, how it's this snowball of allowing police officers to get more weapons, get more money, get more power, get more jurisdiction, get more leeway, and get more uh, allowances within the justice system. And a big part of now is stretching all the way back from the 1800s, a big reason for that is something that is called qualified immunity. <laughs> And I've been waiting so long to get to this point because I think a lot of people here, especially in recent years with uh, the police brutality cases that have been going on is qualified immunity gets thrown around like crazy um, and qualified immunity. Um, it, it's this shadow that is cast over basically every single police officer and their daily actions. Um, and it's something that a lot of people don't really know what it is. And it's, actually really controversial um so to talk about where qualified immunity comes from we're going to go all the way back to the civil rights act of 1871 so hold on to
1: your wigs folks
2: i know right and so uh (laughs) what most people don't uh, realizes that there, before the Civil Rights Act of 1965, there was an earlier one, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, uh, which gave Americans the right to sue public officials who violate their legal rights. Um, that was one big part of the act. Um, and so, the modern analog is uh, U.S. Code 1983, um, and it states uh, if a government official violates your rights, you can file a lawsuit to hold the public official financially accountable for their actions. Wow. Sounds great, right? Sounds awesome. And so here's an instance. Uh, so far. <laughs> here's an instance um, of a court case where uh, this actually happened. So it was Monroe v. Pape. Uh, the act was uh, initially interpreted um, as intended by the Supreme Court. So in Monroe v. Uh, Pape, the Monroes, a black family, were suing the Chicago Police Department after police raided their house without a warrant rounded up the family, made them stand naked in the living room while the officers ransacked the house. I mean, ripping open couch cushions, tearing beds, pulling apart dresser, just absolutely just ripping that, up the so, carpet.
0: It's so dehumanizing.
2: <laughs> oh, 100%. I mean, you think of this family in their living room round up like wild animals naked while police officers destroy their home, looking for something and, and that's that not there. And before,
0: yeah, It's not like the criminals being arrested, you know, and even yeah. if they were, you're still, you're still able to have access to some type of dignity. Like mm-hmm. these people weren't even being arrested.
2: And so uh, the officers did actually make an arrest that night of James Monroe, mm-hmm. um, and he was detained and interrogated for hours.
0: But they didn't know going into the house, right? That they were about to arrest them. They had to find something. I don't
2: believe, I can't remember, um, why they, uh, raided the house. Um, okay. it was without a warrant. I think it was a, a case where, um, it's it almost was, all the
1: informant.
2: yeah, it was, it was mm-hmm. most likely unsubstantiated claims by an informant. Um, and so justice, uh, William Douglas wrote in his opinion that the Supreme court recognized. Uh, that the Civil Rights Act allowed the Monroe's to sue the officers for violating the civil rights. Um, the court explained that the purpose of the Civil Rights Act was to give a remedy to parties deprived of constitutional rights, privileges, and immunities by any official's abuse of his position. And I think wow. from this description of this case, I think we can all agree it was a huge abuse of their position. Um So over time and in recent years, the Supreme Court basically gutted the purpose of the act creating its legal defense, Qualified Immunity. Uh, The Supreme Court created the doctrine of uh, Qualified Immunity in 1967, describing it as a modest exception for public officials who acted in good faith and believed that their actions were uh, authorized by law. So it goes back to the whole idea of, well, they meant it in good faith, therefore it's justified.
1: And it also goes to the idea, too, of, like, like, like you, you can't know what they were thinking and that they were acting in good faith. So you basically have to go on the good faith that they are an officer. And, of course, they did everything, you know, by the book. And, of course, they, they did things with, with a complete, uh, you know, a, a predisposition of, like, of, of, of perfect goodness. Mm -hmm. Like, like, you know, so like, it goes back to the idea of like, like, I don't know why when somebody puts on a a uniform that makes them perfect. Yeah. It doesn't.
2: (laughs) Well, and that, that was kind of the point of this is they, it it was a way to recognize that police officers aren't perfect. And so it protected police (laughs) officers from civil action due to incidents caused by their actions while on duty.
1: But it assumes that they had a good intention.
2: Yes. And so, and just as there are justified homicides, there are instances in where qualified immunity can be justified, though it's highly, highly debated and it seems pretty rare. But for example, in 2014, the Supreme Court held in Plumhoff versus uh, Ricard that police officers didn't use excessive force in violation of the fourth amendment When they shot and killed the driver of a fleeing vehicle to end a dangerous car chase, the court also held that even if the officer used excessive force, they were entitled to qualified immunity because it wasn't clearly established that shooting the driver in the circumstances amounted to excessive force. And so basically in this case, it was justified because. They had to use this force in order to prevent further damage or further harm by this driver. And so that is an instance where, at least in my perspective and in the court's perspective, it was justified. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moving forward with Harlow v. Fitzgerald, um, this is a case where it greatly expanded the standards of qualified immunity. Um, The protection afforded by the doctrine would no longer rely on whether the official acted in good faith. So, good faith is now out the window. Uh, this precedent was set uh, that even if the official acted maliciously in, the, in violating a person's rights, the official would remain immune unless uh, unless the victim's rights were clearly established. The court continued to interpret this as unless a previous case set the precedent for a specific situation in a specific wow. context, their oh rights gosh. could not be clearly established and qualified immunity would apply
1: it's like they, they held you at gunpoint but you weren't naked therefore this is a
2: different situation 100 percent. unless the victim can point to a judicial decision that happened to involve the same context and conduct the officer will be shielded from liability so we see that original case of uh the monroe v pape where that happened and it worked. It it was justified. They were able to sue and win for their violation of the rights. Today, if a black family was circled up in their house, they're on a no-knock warrant, with I, they didn't even have a warrant, completely destroyed their house, they would lose the lawsuit due to qualified immunity because their family wasn't naked. Wow. So... It, oh, it's, it's absolutely baffling. Now, with that said, however, there is an exception. So looking at Hope v. Pelzer, the exception is basically that if the act is so cruel, so obvious, then qualified immunity doesn't apply. So in Hope v. Peltzer, uh, correction officers disciplined a prisoner by handcuffing him to a hitching post for seven hours with his hands above his shoulders, shirtless in the summer sun. At what point, a guard taunted the prisoner by giving giving water to a guard dog in plain sight. Faced with these circumstances and no prior case that had confronted similar facts, the Supreme Court ruled the officer's cruelty was so obvious that they should have had fair warning that their conduct violated the constitutional protection against cruel and unusual punishment." The
1: scary thing also about this is that because they don't, because the lawyers protecting the states and the governments don't want a precedent to be set, they're more likely to try to get people to settle out of court because mm -hmm. they don't want to give another, you know, reason on the books that somebody would have a precedent to, to, to get out in the
2: future. Yeah. And so as we've I'm been caring. going through this entire episode and you question, why is there nothing holding police officers accountable? Why are, why are we as citizens not able to hold these bad cops accountable? And it's because of this. And the only way to beat qualified immunity is if there is a specific case, a specific, pre- a specific precedent set in court That is the exact, literally to the T, the exact same as your circumstance, or if the violation is so obvious, so cruel, just so unusual that there's just no choice but to uh, take qualified immunity out of the question, there's, there's nothing you can do to be. Those are the only two ways to defeat qualified immunity.
0: Well, that's why the George Floyd verdict is so important, because there's now precedent in court. Yes. Under oh, Derek Chauvin's verdict. Yeah. Um, that's it's a huge deal, not just because justice was sort of served, you know, but also because now moving forward, there's legal precedent.
2: But to that's convict. The, that's the scary thing though, is because we've seen it in my research I saw it on multiple cases where that is true, and that precedent is set. But it can be so specific, though. Yeah, that if it happens again, true. where instead of a knee, it's someone's elbow, well, there's not a case of that. Sorry.
0: Very true. You know, do you guys the the there is another profession that comes to mind um, with this type of immunity? Do you guys know what I'm thinking of by chance?
2: Oh goodness, uh, the medical community. The medical community. Okay. So oh. doctors
0: in general in the medical. Community. This includes pharmaceuticals, doctors, nurses, etc. Have a very similar form of immunity, and the reasoning for that is because there is an argument that doctors are people; they're going to mess up, right. but they should. They can't be too scared to perform their job. You yes. know that that they're avoiding any type of possible R and D or like trying to like use their intuition on a patient. So we do have to protect doctors to some sense. And that's like the way I'm thinking about it in my mind. Like we do need to have laws that protect doctors because humans are human, human bodies fail. We do X, we do Y, we do Z. And we need to make sure that doctors can practice without constant fear of legal repercussions. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the only thing I can think of like in a profession that's similar to to this and like the justification of like, well, we need some protection in the place. But then if a doctor, you know, slices you with a scalpel because they weren't paying attention, like <laughs> they shouldn't be protected from that.
2: Yeah. So when I, I was, I, I was actually reading in research for this series, there was a police officer who, um, he actually holds like a PhD, like he's, he's in, um, writes some incredibly brilliant article. And I think I have some of his stuff in my, uh, show notes, But he actually talked about the idea of doing, of rewriting the police code of conduct and making it more like the Hippocratic Oath, because, um, you know, with the Hippocratic Oath, it's all about the preservation of life. And so I think we've seen within the narrative of policing over the past hundred years, where so much of it is stop the crime at all costs. And, you know, it's this line of division, us and them, where he wants to implement a new code of conduct where it's, Basically, it's preserve all life at all costs, whether it be you, the victim, or the perpetrator. And right? then
1: police would be afraid to do to say that though, because because yeah. that would make it official that that is their job. And mm-hmm. and for some reason, that is not like that's not what's on the the contract they sign. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Um. But yeah, so that's qualified immunity, <laughs> and it's not it's a lot. interesting.
1: No, and it's a reason that a lot of this keeps going, going forward, uh, does, you know, kind of never stops, keep getting worse. Uh, you know, and we just kind of keep throwing money at this stuff. Um, there's a program called COPS, COPS, um, that was, uh, implemented by Bill Clinton and then Senator Biden to hire more, uh, more police. Um, and basically they just gave a ton more money, um, and didn't, say what it was going to do, but a lot of liberal um, people and a lot of liberal news outlets uh, were really behind this uh, because it had a name that was similar to like community policing or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was, but this, this one journalist from Oregon was quoted as saying, the unfortunate truth about community policing as it is currently being implemented is that it's anything but community based and that Portland basically like. Increased militarization of the police force using this and did not bother to read the details of what it would actually be used for
2: Kara, did you know Looking at Portland now and looking, did you know that Portland had increased militarization in their police? back then
0: No, I didn't I I all I know now is that the current relations between the police, the mayor and the city are worse than they've ever been. And they've ramped up militarization of the police. Um, and they do, they do this of.
1: under, under the guise
0: that, that SWAT
1: teams are going to be there military, you know, is going to be there mm-hmm. in case of terrorism or school shootings or hostage taking, you know, they use these big ideas to sell why they need it. But, when it really comes down to it, it's something like eighty ninety percent of the of the cases that are that are used with this equipment are drug related. they're yeah. They're not these big events. They're not saving it for these moments. They're just using it because they have it.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of the poor, Portland in particular, and I think we' we are we are seeing this around the country. We did see it um, last summer um, was with, with the riots in Portland. And it really helped bolster the justification Mm -hmm. for, well, we need these SWAT teams. And I was like, look, I get it. Some of those riots in Portland turned nasty. And it was scary to see my, you know, my home city like that. But it's also kind of funny to me that you, you're talking about civilians. Granted, civilians that may have access to some, you know, pretty intense equipment. And you need a SWAT team for them. Kind of sounds like your community policing was already off to begin with. Well, and they call them in first too, you know, exactly. it's
1: like the same thing if, if, if things get out of control and buildings are burning and then you, you know, then you have to like create this, come in with a SWAT team or whatever you think of it. Like, like even like the January 6th thing, yep. like they got in because they were not ready for them. No. Like mm-hmm. they had to attack the Capitol first. They had to do the insurrection first that justified The use of more force, Mm -hmm. and one of the things that books the book brings up, what I thought was fascinating, was when these big situations actually do happen. SWAT teams do not break in doors; they do not bust heads. When the Columbine massacre happened, one of the famous stories was that they waited for like I think it was a couple hours before they went in. Because they, they they didn't want to be in the line of fire because they didn't know what was going on in there. Mm-hmm. So even though there was all the motivation to use the, the full force of the SWAT team in a perfect, you know, ideal terrible situation, uh, they didn't. And they don't usually. So like when the SWAT teams actually needed for these big things, they don't rush in. But when it's drugs, it's just gung ho. Right there's a little bit here about the battle in Seattle protest. That was a big jump forward um, in this idea of a protest zone versus a no protest zone. Um, Dalen, you saw the no protest zone when you were there at the inauguration, didn't you?
2: Yes, I did. Um, I didn't
1: know that was a thing before you mentioned it on that episode.
2: Yeah. I mean, so they, they definitely turned it into a no protest zone. Um, And they, they had a, Um, I guess a quote-unquote free speech zone um, where, I mean, basically no one was there. Um, But yeah, I mean, when you you look at the difference of the Black Lives Matter protests I was at where it was everybody, open, free speech, here we go, protest turned into, I wouldn't call it a riot, but a massive protest compared to Inauguration Day in D.C. where it was shut down entirely. There was Mm -hmm. nothing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and this is a kind of a controversial thing that some cities are doing. Um, it, it's probably not a good idea because it doesn't, it doesn't let the steam out from, from the people who are riled up. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if I agree with this. Um, but So in 1999, uh, when the Battle in Seattle protests broke out, they were actually protesting uh, the World Trade Organization, the idea of globalization. Um, and 180 people were arrested, but they were arrested in a way that, that they were that they basically broke out of the protest zone into the no protest zone. They blocked intersections. They stopped delegates from getting to where they needed to go. And the police, instead of going about certain ways to, to ask them to disperse, instead they kind of corralled them, arrested them all, and they actually successfully sued the city um, saying that, that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't done correctly. And, wow. and, uh, and uh, the city settled, I should say. They actually didn't maybe win, exactly. But the city settled so they wouldn't have to deal with the fallout from that. Right. The police chief, Norm Stamper, um, had a great quote in the book, um, Rise of the Warrior Cop, uh, where he said, it was the worst mistake of my career. We gassed fellow Americans engaging in civil disobedience. We set a number of precedents, most of them bad, and police departments across the country learned all the wrong lessons from us. He said, that's disheartening. I mean, you look at what happened to those Occupy protesters at UC Davis when a cop just pepper sprays them down like he's watering a bed of flowers. And I think we played a part in making that sort of a thing so common, so easy to do now. It's beyond cringeworthy. And I wish to hell my career had not ended on that note or had ended on a happier note is the actual quote. Man. Um, yeah. So he realized his part in this rise of militarization.
2: That I don't think I've ever like really heard uh, a quote from a police officer and a police chief at that of really looking back in hindsight and saying, man, like I had a hand in this and I feel awful that I did
1: yeah you don't hear you don't hear the human aspect of cops very often it's almost always the official release of a a statement from the city or something like that and it's very cold and it's kind of like a thoughts and prayers sort of statement um you don't really hear the the reality of the people behind the badge very often um so yeah i found i found that to be incredibly humanizing um of that um or that it way it did that. Right. Um. thousand five report by the Government Accountability Office found that that while the violent crime rate uh, dropped thirty two percent between nineteen ninety three and two thousand, that at most the cops program um, accounted for two and a half percent of that decrease at a cost of eight billion dollars.
2: Eight um, billion
1: dollars. And Obama reinstated the cops program anyway, funding it with 1.5 billion. So now we're now wow. we're talking about billions of dollars that get put into this um, this little cyclical thing of uh, of them buying up tanks and other military gear and using it on protesters, not you know terrorists, not active shooters, but people who are protesting and in their case, in, in their opinion, getting too too rowdy.
2: That's where I, I wonder if there hadn't been this divide, if there hasn't been this narrative or the, the way protesters have been treated, if now protests wouldn't as likely be turned into violent events. You know, I wonder if throughout the past, you know, 60 years or whatever, if it, the narrative would have been different. If, you know, we wouldn't have had Portland, you know, burning up the way it did, if we wouldn't have, you know, the um, violent protests that I saw here in Austin, you know, I, I, you can say a lot of what ifs, you know, what are the alternatives, but with the norm that we've had since forever, um, you know, it just feels like we're kind of stuck with it.
1: A friend of mine who's very anti-police—I um, think to an extreme—that I'm not completely comfortable with—and I've yeah. told him that before—he has the argument that situations like when the cops are, are macing um, protesters, especially ones that are that are peaceful, um, you know, establishes this, this idea that protecting property is most important and mm-hmm. and the people are, are, are far, far, you know, second or third. Um, and that property doesn't matter that it's, you know, that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's much more about the lives of people and society. And if you're, all you're doing is protecting whatever building, you know, that, that, that they might, uh, break a window or something like that. Is it really worth, um, that amount of destruction. I think that's a fair argument, although I don't agree with the further argument of, of police equal bad.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so
1: in 1990, there was a famous uh, uh, a verdict of the beating of Rodney King mm-hmm. by, by a police officer. Um, and uh, it was sort of the precursor to a lot of what we hear today of, of, of uh, police brutality. And it started a riot when uh, the police officer was acquitted. Uh, in, in Los Angeles, uh, 13,000 troops uh, from the California National Guard were sent in. There were 53 fatalities, 2,000 people injured, and $1 billion of damage. Um, by contrast, another way to have handled it um, is what San Diego did, which is just a little bit down the road. Um, and they knew that this was going to be an unpopular decision if if, if it went that way. Um, so, so they instead, um, instead of you know, breaking heads and setting up these militarized police, um, they actually did a lot of work uh, talking with city leaders, um, with the civil civil rights leaders, minority leaders. Um, they set up a hotline to report police abuse um, against citizens. Um, they persuaded a TV station to host a telethon. <laughs> this is the very 90s, right? Um, <laughs> uh, host a telethon in which uh, people were able to call in and have conversations with city leaders about this, and the Los Angeles Times credited those efforts with saving San Diego from the riots that Los Angeles dealt with in the fallout of the Rodney King um, court case.
2: Funny what happens so there, when you actually connect with your community.
1: Yeah, you put in the work. It's the boring stuff. It's the putting in the. It's you know the extra lighting. It's those are the things that go unsung a lot, but are actually make you a hero.
2: So, Curtis, what is this down here about uh, asking us about the show Phenomenon?
1: <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I purposely took this out because I didn't want you just look ahead in the notes and know the answer to this. Okay, so... Um, what show started in 1989 that was an absolute phenomenon that uh, furthered uh, the the sort of perception of cops? And I have a clue uh, to 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 give you that that will help will hopefully help you get it.
2: Okay, you ready?
0: Ready. Okay. Huh!
2: <laughs> I, I don't think
0: I watch enough TV. <laughs> I
2: I am going to guess that it is the show Cops.
0: Bad boys, what?
1: You, oh what God, you want, damn what you it! Do. That? <laughs>
2: that's so good.
1: So yeah, so like, there is nothing to me that's more indicative of of modern policing and mm-hmm. maybe more look responsible than the show Cops. Yep. Um, so I took I took this out of the notes so nobody would get it, but now I have to like now, now I have to read it from my notes. So. Uh, <laughs> So, so the show Cops began in 1989 with an instant cultural and ratings hit. Um, it gained a reported 15 million viewers um, at first, and it wow. actually kept 8 million viewers per episode uh, for many years. Um, many people who were on the show that were arrested actually like, signed the forms so that they could see the, you could see their face because they saw it as a badge of honor to be on this cultural hit. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in the show, in the making of the show, Cruz basically was tagged along with police. It was one of the first reality shows um, ever on the air, and it was at the time considered to be one of the most raw, verite um, mm-hmm. shows that, that were on TV. There was no storyline, there was no you know, there was no continuous characters. It was just tagging along with police, and and it was really popular. But after a time people started noticing a lot of continuing themes. Um, mm-hmm. So what, what seemed to be unproduced was actually heavily produced. So oh yeah. For every, for every 100 minutes that were shot, they used one minute of that. Another, another study conducted that same year concluded that the T D officers were far better solvers of crime than most. Um, and, uh, as as measured in official government statistics, and the show's portrayal of violent crime uh, were more of a caricature than reality. Mm -hmm. Rapes, robberies, Mm -hmm. murders, and the like accounted for just 13% of all crime committed in the U.S. in 1994, yet in the world of cops, it was 43%. Uh, The same study found that cops was far more likely to associate black and brown people than whites with violent crime, 40% um, versus 13% which was the reality. 13% was reality, 40% was what they showed it on cops. Mm-hmm. Um while one of the country's most victimized demographic, young black men, were usually un- underrepresented as the victim. Um so, you know, the show actually went off in 2020. They are technically still filming for for uh for other markets, I guess, um which is what I just learned. Um, for I guess other markets still had a contract with them or something so they're technically still filming Um, during the run of their show at least one of their crew members was shot and died oh wow uh, um, but outside of a robbery that was taking place so it was a really dangerous show to work on Um, but, um, but it played this huge part in our perception of cops and my understanding of it is cops watched the show Cops to understand how to be cops and then the cops on the show cops wanted to be like other cops they saw on the program cops and acted like them so so like it's hard to know what came first but eventually there was a standard for what a cop did how they acted how they interacted with the people and unfortunately it was based on a reality TV show that Spoiler alert for all you people who love reality TV is not realistic in the least. So yeah, so Bill Clinton is elected in 1992. Uh, he was a former hippie who had smoked pot, but apparently didn't inhale, which was always like the lamest <laughs> thing I ever heard anyone say. <laughs> um, but a lot of people had hope that he would be softer on on drug users and marijuana users. Um, So uh, that kind of went away pretty quickly because Clinton had a program called Troops to Cops, which subsidized police departments for hiring returning veterans, which sounded Mm. good. But if those people have PTSD and militarized training, they're going to act the way they acted in war, on the streets of America,
2: mm-hmm. I mean, so, it plays into the whole continuing theme of militarization of the police force, right? And
1: and it plays against this defense of it's just a few bad apples because if you were just randomizing the people who were there and you had a you know some bad incidents that happened, you could just say they're they're bad apples. But if this if the same thing keeps happening for the same reasons it's 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 you've skewed the the type of cop that is joining by literally rewarding police departments who hire that particular type and then you wonder you know why do they why do they start off with so so many you know so much ptsd like well you hired a veteran and that's great but maybe they should be doing something less stressful (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. maybe there should be a, a, a more of a screening that makes sure they're ready to demilitarize and join a non-military force that is the police. And then, oh, and Clinton did this thing. I've heard this, about this before, too. Um, he did this really crappy thing. It was called One Strike and You're Out. Yeah. Um, it basically, if, if any drug offense, even a misdemeanor, is committed in public housing that's supported by federal funding, those people would be evicted,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, even if the person who owned the house didn't know it was happening. Say a grandmother that is taking care of her grandchild because the grandchild's father is in jail. So now the grandmother and the grandchild are out on the street because the grandchild smoked pot in in the bedroom or whatever. Something innocent, not the big, not the biggest deal, has just ruined their lives.
2: I just, I don't understand the lack of humanity in so many of these laws and whatnot. Like, it just, it seems like there's just such a lack of care and empathy for people.
1: It's because it's punishment
2: first,
0: yeah.
1: right? Isn't that what we were told um, in the episode about private prisons? Yeah. yeah,
0: it's not reform. It's punish, punish, punish.
1: It feels better to punish than mm-hmm. to help or to understand, you know, uh, to learn to expand, um, to progress. It's much better to just hold your ground and say, well, it's your fault. You got tangled up in this law. guess you shouldn't have done it, but that's not the point. Maybe the law shouldn't have been there to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, and a real quick note, we're kind of wrapping up here the episode, but, but one thing I thought was interesting was uh, in the nineties, Republicans were against raids for a while because um, a lot of the raids were on um, conservative groups um, such as the raid on Branch Davidian compound in Waco, uh, which were, it was kind of like a libertarian uh, hero group um, that you know were kind of their own like posse and refused to to get off the land or whatever.
2: Okay. <sighs> The Branch Davidians is its own entire... If you want to learn about the Branch of Davidians, watch the limited series Waco, which has its own issues and its representation of the... Uh, um, oh, what is it? The tobacco and firearms, the TFA or whatever it is, um, and the FBI. It has its own issues in its representation of those law enforcement officials. But watch Waco, and if you want a true, honest detailed explanation of the branch Davidians as well as Ruby Ridge listen to the branch Davidians episode of last podcast on the left um, it will give you a perfect explanation as to what happened at uh uh during the siege in Waco at the branch Davidians as well as Ruby Ridge it is a it's it's an absolutely horrific use of force by the US government it is they, they murdered 76 people and burned men, women, and children alive. It's, it's, wow. it's absolutely horrific. And it, they came back out of it. Um, the FBI basically toted it as a huge success because Ruby Ridge was an absolute disaster. Um, and so once the Branch Davidians happened, it gave them a chance to say, hey, let's go in, guns a and we're going to be the heroes in the eyes of America. And, and it, Bill Clinton
1: defended the government raids by the ATF as yeah. just
2: upholding the law. It was an absolute disaster.
1: Interesting. And then so we move on to 2001. Bush won the election. Um, and then he started raiding marijuana clinics, which is just the lowest thing <laughs> you can do. I mean, there's people sick that are just trying to get, get some weed. And you're raiding them. hmm Oh George Bush, um,
2: but hey, our then, boy uh, Daryl Gates is apparently still around. What's what's he up to? What's he been up well, to? I think was,
1: well, we got we're we're kind of messing with time here a little bit. Like so, so Gates actually did resign in 1992. Really? Um, yeah, it, uh, the I believe it was the fallout from the Rodney King uh, riot that ended up happening. That was kind of it. Kind of did him in. By that point, though, he had already established SWAT teams. You know, had been responsible for SWAT teams um, establishing all over America. There's there's literally thousands of SWAT teams uh, all over America. Depend doesn't matter if your town has five thousand people or five million. You have a SWAT team almost for sure. Um, so his his lasting legacy is the SWAT teams. Um, but he did. Kind of have to resign in a little bit of um, mm-hmm. of, of, of you know negative uh, press because of because of how that
2: went so wrong. Well, and I think I, this is a really important sentence you paraphrase from Rise of the uh, Warrior Cop is, um, the Rodney King verdict and the riots thereafter ended Daryl Gates' career. By then, SWAT teams across America numbered in the thousands. Most of them weren't responding to riots or Black Panther barricades or shootings. Most SWAT teams spent most of their time breaking down doors on drug raids. SWAT didn't stop the Rodney King riots. Only the National Guard did.
1: Yeah, and, and you know the thing that they're most supposed to be used for, they they, they weren't appropriate for. <laughs> you know, so... It it was it was kind of like like it failed in its main purpose, but also found another purpose. It was very successful at, but we would argue that it's not appropriate to be used that way. Um, but yeah, um, Gates died in two thousand um, and ten, uh, and SWAT teams are still yeah. going strong today. And uh, that's kind of where today's episode kind of ends. We're gonna go back on a couple of things and expand on them a little bit more like no knock raids, um, stuff like that. But that's essentially the spark notes on the history of the police, why we created them and why we gave them power.
2: And that now, do we uh, do about it? brings us to the end of part two of our good cop, bad cop series. Uh, we do have one more part in this series coming up. Curtis, what are we going to be talking about in the next episode?
1: Oh, it's really exciting. So, so now that we have that primer of everything that led up to now, we're going to kind of, uh, discuss where we're at now and, and, uh, and what we can do about it. We're going to, we're going to take a, a, we're going to, we're going to kind of create a archetypal cop. We're going to talk about typically what, what, you know, what sex they are, what, what, uh, you know, how old they are, how much education they get, the pressure they get put under the, you know, the the, the how they get through academy, uh, what's required to pass the academy, all these different things. We're going to build up an archetypal cop and then we're going to take this archetypal cop and in a fictionalized way, we're going to make them break bad. We're going to we're going to we're going to show the routes that that a lot of cops take. That lead them down this bad apple road. That is not just because they're just bad people. Just like the drug pe- drug dealers are not just bad people. They're not just bad people, but there's actually a system that you know ignores bad cops, rewards bad cops over good cops sometimes, and um, perpetuates a system that if we don't do something about it, will never
2: end. Kara, any final thoughts before we sign off?
0: No, thanks, Curtis, for doing such great research. It's definitely an important topic, so I'm glad we're talking about it.
2: All right, y'all. Uh, that will do it for today's episode. I'm happy you stuck around. I know this is a uh, a very heavy hitter that we're uh, jumping back into, but uh, I, hope you've, still. I hope you've enjoyed <laughs> it. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, um, anything that uh, we missed out on in the episode or anything, uh, any questions that arose for you, uh, you can get a hold of us at pwb network at gmail.com you can also check us out uh, on our website get a hold of us there on uh, podcast you can uh, follow us on facebook uh, where i put all of our updates on our facebook page uh, facebook forward slash uh, podcast without borders uh yeah get a hold of us if you have any questions folks otherwise stick around for part three of good cop bad Cop. bye everybody bye, bye. Thank you for listening to Social Discord, part of the Podcast Without Borders Network. You can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. Thanks for listening.